Thanks very much to The Breakfast team for another fantastic three hours of radio. But coming up right now, in a few moments, is Discovery. Science featuring deep impact on the moon, some smashed comets and giant cockroaches. Welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. 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 Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of the user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Hello and welcome to Discovery, the national half-hour radio show that you are definitely listening to right now. I'm Keir Smith, and on this edition we'll feature remote-controlled cockroaches, comets getting smashed into each other and everything that's around, and first up, Matt Clark with the news. Operational Mars rover has finally been freed after becoming bogged in a sand dune for three weeks. The rover named Opportunity, which became stuck in the sand on May 13, has had NASA scientists worried that it would never emerge from its sticky situation. With the NRMA saying they can't have anyone there until about 2018, the rover's operators had to find some other way to get it out. So instead of going to Mars themselves, they brought Mars to them. Trucking in tons and tons of sand and using an exact replica of the vehicle stuck on the red planet, they were able to devise a way to get it free. How did they do it? How does any guy try to get himself out of a bog? They simply put the pedal to the metal, doing a burnout so large that had it been performed in Sydney's Brighton La Sands, would have seen the rover confiscated by police. Roaming free on Mars once again, Opportunity continues to beam back images and defiance used by date by over 400 days. A long-lost security flaw has been discovered in the latest version of popular open-source web browser Firefox. The seven-year-old vulnerability, which has been fixed in previous versions of the Mozilla-based browser, but seems to have cropped up again in version 1.0.4 released recently. The flaw enables the creator of a malicious website to load any content they like inside another website. This will, would enable them to do things like fooling people into thinking they were logging into their internet banking site, when in reality they were entering their login information on a duplicate site which collected and used these details. The makers of Firefox have acknowledged the flaw and say it will be resolved in the next release. And it's good news for any guy who's ever been caught by their wife looking at pornography. A study by the University of Western Australia has found that guys looking at pornography that contains both men and women 
greatly increases the quality of their sperm. Lee Simmons of UWA says that males of many species, including humans, produced much better sperm when faced with a female who has other mates because this stimulates them to boost their chances of procreation. Simmons and his team gathered 52 volunteers who each viewed sexually explicit pictures of either two men and a woman or three women. Although when the two groups emerged about 38 seconds later, they had produced the same amount of sperm, the group who viewed the pictures with men and women had sperm whose motility, or swimming ability, was far higher. This is thought to occur because when confronted with competition from other males to fertilize one female, the guy with the fastest sperm wins the race and continues his genetic line. And lastly, in news from the marine world, researchers from the University of New South Wales have found evidence of dolphins using tools to catch fish. While they are still some way off learning the finer points of a baitcaster reel, Dr. Michael Crutzen says dolphins have learned to use a sea sponge to catch their food. The dolphins found in Shark Bay in Western Australia have been seen using sea sponges to scare fish hiding in the sand, which are then quickly snapped up. Crutzen and his team found that this behaviour is something passed down from mother to daughter and not a genetic behavioural trait. The team also noticed that males never use the sponges, possibly because dolphin males have a much more complex social life and have no time for such things. Sometime on the 4th of July, a small, well, a sort of 4th of July, a small space probe will slam into the comet Temple 1 as part of NASA's Deep Impact mission. The aim of the mission is to figure out what lies below the comet's surface and thereby learn something about the origins of our solar system. Dr. Rob Sharp is a researcher or a research astronomer at the Anglo-Australian Observatory. He's carrying out some of these observations as part of Deep Impact. David Huang spoke to him about the mission and what it hopes to achieve. Uh, and they're flying a spacecraft to a comet that's orbiting between Mars and Jupiter. Uh, and there's a instrument on board the satellite which is going to be positioned in front of the comet, and the comet's going to run over it. And the idea is that that'll create a uh, crater on the surface of the comet, and material will be ejected from the comet and we'll be able to observe the ejector and hopefully work out more about not so much what the comet's made of, because we think we already understand that reasonably well, but more how the comet's structured. You said the the measurements will tell us the structure of the comet. What do you mean by that? So we, we think from observations of, of comets that have already been undertaken and from meteorites that have, have landed on the Earth that we know what is inside comets. We know what they, they consist of. 
But what we don't really have any idea of is, is their physical structure, sort of how they're put together. And one of the observations that will be done from, from the Deep Impact mission is by looking at how large the crater is that's created on the comet and how much material is, is ejected from the comet. We'll be able to understand how that material actually is built up inside the comet. It's the difference between it being built like a mud hut or built like a spotted steel skyscraper. And from looking at how the impact affects the comet, we'll be able to work out not only what the comet is built of, but how it's built of those materials. How does information help? Well, the reason people are interested in comets is that they're relics of, of the early solar system. We, we think from observations of comets that have uh, already been undertaken and from meteorites that land on the Earth, that comets are made up of the stuff that the early solar system formed from and that they're, they're fairly a pristine representation of, of what the solar system was like when the planets were forming. And they've not been altered by weather patterns or the effects of biological life or geological processes. Will hitting the comet actually put it off course? So the effect of the impact has been described uh, to being similar to uh, an airliner hitting a bug. Uh, so basically you'll have almost no impact on the actual comet itself. Uh, the predictions for the, the change in velocity of the comet, which is the, the parameter that governs its, its orbital parameters, is uh, less than a thousandth of a millimeter per second is that the change in speed that we, we expect to see. The strength of the, the impact has kind of been estimated as being around about similar kind of strength to, to an explosion that you might get from five tons of TNT. And it has a really kind of tiny effect on the, on the comet itself. So this, this mission isn't really all about trying to work out how we might destroy comets that might threaten the, the Earth in the future. That isn't really a goal of the, of the science that's trying to be done here. How far will the comet be from the Earth when these measurements are made? The comet normally orbits uh, in a, a reasonably elliptical orbit that brings it in at its closest approach to the Earth to just beyond Mars, so it's quite a long way from us still, and it's most distant from the Earth, it's out near Jupiter. So the impact will actually occur uh, with the comet at something like 130 million miles away from the Earth. And there really is absolutely no danger of this comet ever coming to hit the Earth. It, it doesn't cross our path at all. You're making some observations as part of the mission. What observations are you making? Part of my job here at the observatory is a support scientist. So modern astronomical instrumentation has got rather complicated, and not every astronomer is able to understand every different type of instrumentation. Some of the instruments we have here at the anglo australian Observatory are really rather complex examples of, of this kind of instrumentation. So my job here is to be familiar with the instrumentation, and a group of scientists in the U.S. and in the U.K., want to use the six-degree field facility, which we have here at the UK Schmidt Telescope, not to try and do observations of just the comet itself, but the tail of the comet. So we'll be using 60F, which is an instrument that has a field of view about 12 times the size of the full moon, and lets us look at a very large area of the sky in one go, and we'll take spectra from different parts of the comet before, during, and after the impact over that entire six-degree field. And the idea is that we'll be able to look at how the spectrum of the comet changes with time, and we'll hopefully be able to see material that's ejected from the comet as it propagates down the tail and as it starts to interact with the solar wind. And hopefully we'll be able to see changes in the material, um, whether the material that we observe in the tail of a comet before the impact is identical to, to the material that, that comes straight out of the comet, or whether the material actually inside the comet is modified when it's ejected and we'll be looking for the signature of those modifications to see how the material changes and that will tell us whether our current understanding of, of what's in comets is biased by the fact that the real material that's in there is perhaps changed after it's ejected. So measurements are being made from Earth as well as from closer to the comet? S something like uh, a third to a half of the world's 
professional telescopes will be looking at the comet around the time of the deep impact. And we're quite privileged here in Australia in that the impact will occur while the comet is high in the sky above Hawaii, which means that two or three hours after the impact, Australia is in a prime position to observe the immediate aftermath of, of the impact, which is something that uh, won't be done from the spacecraft that's up near the comet, purely because it's not possible to, to keep it near the comet for long enough. And so we're in, we're in quite a privileged position to look at the evolution and the, the short-term after-effects of the impact. And is it visible for the average observer? Uh, the comet won't be visible to the naked eye before the impact, and not an awful lot is known about exactly how bright it's going to be after the impact. But um, many, many amateur astronomers with even modest-sized telescopes will be watching the event. The, the comet should become bright enough to be quite an impressive sight for amateur observers with, with modest equipment. That was Dr. Rod Sharp from the Anglo-Australian Observatory talking with David Huang, making a little bit of a reference to the famous, the brilliant, one of the finest films ever made, Hollywood's Deep Impact. En la calzada, a los oídos del curioso rellenaba. Ja, ja, había una vez una pareja desprovista, poca vista, sin dinero. Pensando atómico, tónico, crónico, cómo vivir, salir de negro fango que lo gaba. Ramaban, daban entre besos una cámara silente. Para un estúpido, tupido cliente que de vivo el punto mira se las daba. Estaban, daba vigilando a la criolla de carnada. Eso te pasó por no saber que todo tiene su precio. Eso te pasó.
Hi, I'm Gates McFadden, and I played Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation. And I know Dr. Crusher very well, and I am sure that when she's off duty, she would urge you to listen to Discovery. Make it so. the immortal sonic geology of their fantastic bird songs of the Mesozoic. It's the theme from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Before that, you heard from our friend Beverly Crusher, made famous by Star Trek, and before that, Orisha out of Cuba with some Latin hip-hop flavours. Now we're talking about humans and their constant striving to transcend the limitations and become more than what they are. And our story starts not with uh, wheelchair-bound people learning to walk or with exoskeletons built around a body in Japan, but with electronically assisted giant cockroaches in California. Ian Wolfe explores the latest in mad science. Garnet Hertz has developed a three-wheeled mobile robot system controlled by a live cockroach. For reasons of hygiene and engineering, he's used a giant Madagascan hissing cockroach. The cockroach sits in a little pilot seat on top of a trackball, where its movements make the knee-high robot move. A trackball works like a computer mouse. When the cockroach moves, the ball spins, and electronics translate this into wheel movement. The giant Madagascan hissing cockroach is about 8 centimetres long, has no wings, and moves relatively slowly. They're native to the forests of Madagascar and live for about two years. When they're agitated, they make a loud hissing noise out of specially modified breathing slits in their abdomen. Hertz can tell the cockroach isn't scared or in pain when using the robot because it doesn't hiss. These cockroaches can't fly, jump or bite, and they are so clean that they find people dirty. After crawling over a human hand, they tend to spend time cleaning their feet of the oily residue from your skin. Hertz is a graduate student of Arts, Computing and Engineering at the University of California, Irvine. As well as giving the cockroach operator control of a robot tricycle, the cockroach also has electronic feedback from a circle of lights sitting around the pilot seat. If the infrared sensors detect an obstacle ahead, the lights flash to warn the cockroach to back away, which moves the robot away. Cockroaches don't like bright lights. Outside of this extra sense, the cockroach operator is in full control 
and sometimes it will ignore the warnings and choose to ram the robot into a wall just for fun. Hertz has deliberately designed the system without any computers or microcontrollers at all. There's just a timer chip, four infrared sensors, some lights and transistors and resistors. It could all be done with 1940s technology, when Norbert Viner invented cybernetics. The cockroach is the brain. Cockroaches don't actually have a brain. Instead, they have clumps of nerve cells called ganglia that are distributed around their body. Computer scientists have been very interested in modelling these distributed nerve clusters and how they make common sense decisions about survival and navigation. Hertz was directly inspired by the remote-controlled cockroach work at Professor Asahayo Shimayama's lab at the University of Tokyo. Signals from a radio remote control unit were received by the cockroach's backpack computer and used to control the cockroach's movement by electrodes implanted in their antennae. The Japanese team used the smaller American cockroach, which only lives a few months, and removed the wings. They were able to attach tiny microphones and cameras to turn the cockroach into a remotely controlled bugged bug. Researchers hope the cockroaches may be used to help find survivors in the rubble after an earthquake. One of these bug cockroaches was used by spies in the movie The Fifth Element. So, why build a cockroach-controlled Dalek? Is it science or is it art? Hertz says the project explores the relationship between technology, culture and embodiment. This machine combines the embodiment of a cockroach with a technological system and strives to present and examine it within a cultural context, producing tongue-in-cheek emergent and complex behaviour akin to the goals of artificial life and artificial intelligence research. He's also built tiny backpacks for the cockroaches with webcams and microphones. To Hertz's dismay, the US Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, has ongoing funding for his rivals to build several hybrid cockroach robot systems for more warlike purposes. Hertz says, after we've all killed each other with DARPA-funded biomimetic robots, the Earth will be happily inhabited by cockroaches. These insects will need something to drive on all of the abandoned freeways, which is where his project comes in. Fantastic. It looks like Hertz and uh, his thesis is available on the web, web sorry, which is called Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. So if you were to Google Hertz, you'd be able to find out a little bit more. We've got David and Mark with us in the studio, and I understand, David, with your biological background, you're familiar with local cockroaches. Would they be able to be used in a similar circumstance? Oh, absolutely. I can't wait until we can compete. Maybe we can have them coming out of Nimbin sometime. We can have some of our own hippie cockroaches ready to take over. So you just need a grant? Oh, naturally. Yeah. <laughs> From a, a DARPA equivalent locally. Oh, no, no. I think we should um, go to some of the Byron Bay collectives and see if we can build it from the ground up, 1940s style. Well, the circuits are available on his webpage. Unreal. And you get science fiction conventions will be renting you out. Superb. It's got the body of a robot and the brain of a, ma- a cockroach. <laughs> if only cockroaches had brains. <laughs> it is amazing. It is amazing. This is, um, I guess, the future of technology to go into the past and find novel solutions to problems that may not actually exist. If you're going to study cockroach neurons and try and reproduce them in computers, why not bypass that step and just use the cockroaches in the first place? Maybe I can get a cockroach to drive instead of me. I'm pretty lousy at it, but, you know. I've heard they actually trialled some of the Australian cockroaches um, in the early um, things of this study, um, but they couldn't get any of the Australian bush croakers to actually sit around and stop drinking tinnies. (laughs) It's one of the unfortunate circumstances of life in the bush if you're a, well, eight or six-legged insect.
And as we leave you with the dulcet tones of Dubside of the Moon, that's it for us for this edition of Discovery, the finest half hour of science radio anywhere on the planet. And if you'd like to pledge your allegiance to the evil Lord Soromon, or explain why the Australian government locks up children, or maybe even ask us some science-related questions, we can be contacted at discovery at 2SER.com. That's discovery at 2SER.com. Or you can find us through the 2SER website using its search functionality. Contributing to the program today were Matt Clark, Ian Wolfe, David Huang, Mark Branson and David Lowe. Discovery has been produced by me, Keith Smith, in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and is broadcast nationally by the Community Radio Network or heard by podcast the world over. I'm Keir Smith and join us for some more science, fun and fancy next week on Discovery.